welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture Podcast Series. I'm your host, Rose Wolkowski. Please enjoy this recording of Lars Larup's farewell lecture titled Building the Unfinished, an Intellectual Autobiography of a Life in Design, given in Farish Gallery of Anderson Hall on April 4th, 2019. We thank Lars for his enduring dedication to the Rice Architecture Program and the student body and wish him all the best in the next step of his career. Let's tune in. Tomorrow at noon, Aaron Betsky, wave your hand, Dean of the School of Architecture at Taliesin and architecture critic will respond to Lars's lecture, starting off a lunchtime all school roundtable conversation. You're welcome to come. Also, the RDA Spring Civic Forum, focused on the theme of obsolescence, will take place on Tuesday, April 23rd at 6 p.m. at the MFAH. Also note that the RDA Home Tour Adapt is on the last weekend of April, the 27th and 28th. While we're on the topic of schedules, 5 p.m. April 15th is Pencils Down, which is a kickoff to what I know will be an exciting jury week. That means that all 208 of our students are focused on the final push. Everyone, please take the time to be considerate. Also take the time to take a break, walk around the quad, give one another advice, etc. And remember, your studio spaces are bigger than most Manhattan apartments. If you do spill over into the hallways or the computer lab, clean up and clear out when you leave those spaces. No camping. Tonight, we welcome home Lars Larup, who's retiring from Rice after 16 years as dean and another 10 as the Harry K. and Albert K. Smith Professor of Architecture. I say welcome home because Lars has been on sabbatical this term regaling us with occasional emails that detailed a view from his and Ava's 17th floor Fort Lauderdale apartment, and impressing us with his prodigious output. Just yesterday, I received the newest copy of Log, the newest journal issue of Log, with his article, A Sea Change, Refining Simplicity, which I highly recommend, I've already read it. Now, most academics, and certainly all administrators, know that you're not supposed to leave a school on a sabbatical. But I'm not sure that Lars has, I'm not sure that Lars ever really does, or ever really has done, or ever really will do what one is supposed to do. <laughs> That's exactly why and how he's managed for his entire career to make all of us pay attention. Lars first came to my attention with his Stim and Dross Rethinking the Metropolis article in Assemblage which was published in 1994, not long after he started here as dean. With that piece, he pushed all of us to throw out our customary ways of describing, managing, and designing cities. Instead, Lars pitched Houston as having two ecologies, the lush green world of the zoohemic field below and the lofty and these days ozone-filled aerial field above. Larup's Houston is a collection of shifting mega-shapes, urban-scaled rooms, though mega-urban shapes really is the better term, since they aren't the kind of rooms that line up as they are supposed to in alfilades or the like. These shape rooms are formed by tree canopies, by skyscrapers, by low clouds, and by wide skies, all cut through by cars, helicopters, and airplanes, 
zipping about at breakneck speed, an anti-city that is, quote, bio-vehicular, electro-commercial, socio-electronic, and optico-ocular. These four words, which don't necessarily roll off the tongue, bio-vehicular, I think that means Stephen Fox and I, because we're the only people who walk in this city, electro-commercial, socio-electronic, and optico-ocular, these four words, let alone the many, many words in the many subsequent articles and books that Lars has written about Houston and about the contemporary city writ large, are simply electrifying. They shock us into seeing the world anew. This new world is not a simple world. It's not a naive world. It's not a beautiful world. It's the world we're in and the world we all have to work hard to navigate. It's Houston. Lars, we don't want you to forget Houston, so we're giving you some things. Don't open it now. To remember us by. Please, all of you, please join me in toasting Lars for 26 years of doing things one is not supposed to do, and for bringing all of us, all of Houston, along for the wild ride. Cheers, Lars. And it's all yours. Thank you so much. I'm a sentimental guy, so I might start crying. So you better be careful. Thank you so much for all coming. It's wonderful to see so many friends. I didn't realize that there were so many. And it's so nice thinking about you live in a flat city with tremendous commutes to come here to listen to me. I'm so happy about what Zara says. He summarized everything I've thought about cities. So I don't need to talk about that. In fact, this lecture is a setup. I was set up by four, and I would not mention their name, four members of the faculty that took me out for dinner, crying me, and said, you have to talk about your life, about what you have done all those years. Since I was primed, I said yes. <laughs> the instigator flew up to Egypt the other day. The other one flew off to Hawaii. There are two left. I don't know if they're here. But uh, one is closely related to Switzerland. And the other one is closely related to Spain. That means I was set up by a bunch of Europeans, and I'm <coughs> the guy that flew off to Egypt. Now, so I took out my beater. I haven't seen it in years. And I realized that in the beginning, it said things like, went to Villa Savoie, stayed for an hour, left. And now lately, I don't have much mentioned, although I seem to have done a lot. So that's 
you should never believe in those things. So finally, I think it was my wonderful wife that told me, how about images? They're architects. They like your pictures. <laughs> so I said, okay, I will show some pictures. I'm not supposed to this. So uh, I shortened the title to the unfinished. And the first piece, which you will probably dislike me for because I'm going to read for 11 minutes and 18 seconds <laughs> from the first chapter in my new book, The Life and Death of Objects, which is really what I have done secretly for myself. I've never really talked about this in public. So I thought it's appropriate to leave it with you and hope that it gives you trouble. <laughs> Sheltered. Sheltered behind a thin band of islands forming the western archipelago sits a small abandoned fishing village revived by summer guests. It is Sweden, 1973, in late summer. Standing at the window in one of the many typical white houses, the mountain light of early morning opens to a wide outcropping that fills the foreground. Beyond and above the black sea, an intense blue sky. Smooth, the platform of petrified rock. Last shaped by the receding inland ice some 8,000 years ago, it climbs and dips into ridges and valleys. In the wide valleys, a brilliant green swatch of grass covers the ground. Small wooden constructions seem haphazardly strewn across the rock surface. Suddenly a tiny figure in a full-length bathrobe enters, moving slowly across the rock, he or she, hard to say, transverses one of the structures and its purpose becomes clear. But as quickly as the figure disappears in a valley, the bridge turns back into a construction. What remains will soon fade into darkness, already late August. The rapidly approaching dusk is met by the first autumn storm brooding over the horizon. The summers in this theater are short but flooded in a relentless light that is so intense, demanding, and invasive that a nocturnal is erased, only to return and settle in for months. Never has it been so obvious. Never has what is its most familiar seemed so lonely, ambiguous, and lost. Since then, in and out of focus, this early morning drama of earth, weather, and forlorn objects have remained a companion piece for what can only be described as building the unfinished. At first, as a visceral, unforgettable experience, and later as a laboratory or a stage for a series of plays. Like a Beckett stage, the site is utterly simple. A wide paint of sheer granite rock with an array of desolate human traces, all held in view from a house in a village on the mainland behind. 
and out there Skagerrak, the forecourt to the Atlantic Ocean. After the first encounter, the stage has served as an anatomical theater of conflict, of doubt, of elation, of sudden love and white storms. Yet the strange alienation of physical objects in the grand landscape has remained. When a tiny human figure appears on the stage, he or she seems a more natural fit than the bridges. In fact, the name bridge is deceptive. The drama strips the object of its assigned meaning, pushing it out of reach onto the stage. And on this stage, the ancient struggle between humankind and nature fades in place of an internal struggle between us and our creations, simultaneously innocent and monstrous. Hurricanes rage, volcanoes erupt, tsunamis inundate, giant forest fires consume, glaciers are carving and seas are rising, and we're not just occupants, but another geological agency, which through its interventions, its assemblages of machines, shapes both earth and habitat. Design things are no longer tools, the avatar of our ingenuity. Instead, there is a slow recognition that designed objects, material and virtual, form a giant swarm that slowly but surely helps destroy its maker's habitat. The realization is paralyzing, so we re return to the stage in the archipelago. There is a lot of talk about that we are destroying the earth. That's nonsense. We are destroying our habitat. The earth couldn't care less. It has missed all kinds of critters so many times it will just wink a little bit and continue. Turn into an ice egg, maybe turn into something else. We are just merely visitors. That we have had such an impact on this world is something that really only affects us. So we are in a new age. Turning away from the window, a square white room doubles the exterior world. Wait, wait, walking from this room to the next and through two more, a square enfilade of completed is completed. It is sparingly furnished, and the family familiar objects seem unsure about their place. Even the kitchen assembly seems lost. Viewed in light of the precise geography of a city apartment. By the way, this particular picture captures it quite well. You can see the streak of green going down. The inland ice moved in that direction and literally made this incredible landscape with extremely fertile soil in those valleys because the inland ice, when it left, spewed all the good stuff it had frozen up down in these rivers into these particular areas. If Sweden had a better climate, if that's the way to put it, we could have three crops and a south because it's so rich, so black. There, as a young man, I picked potatoes that I threw at the guy that hired us when he wasn't looking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
especially the scent potatoes, the soft ones that you find occasionally. Those are really stinky. <laughs> Turning away from the window, I say, okay, all right, okay, 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 okay. View, lost, seems lost. Viewed in light of the precise geography of a city apartment, the bisymmetrical four-square plan is startling. The landscape of the city apartment has its own land forms. These include sofa groups, dining assemblies, and bedroom arrangements. The guiding generic plan, living, dining, kitchen, bedroom, bathroom, is tattooed on the Western consciousness. The all too familiar pieces of furniture always appear in their expected locations. In this prefigured, petrified background, the average middle-class family lives its daily life expecting to find everything in its place, ready to serve. Its function as a geographical position system. Any deviation causes alarm, but not here in the White House. It stands silent on the edge of the sea. The abstract four-leaf clover of identical rooms show the cultural conspiracy of the Western household. Architecture, now demonstratively autonomous, has abandoned its role as social determiner. The plan with four identical rooms is here a field of possibility that discards the static program view of order and corresponding devolution of intellectual superiority to communal and personal decisions. In short, the opening of a trove of unknown content. In the fading light of the evening, an unexpected symmetry between the rock scene and the foursquare appears. The odd presence of the bridges is mirrored in the lost furniture. Disconcerting at first, it is unexpectedly liberating. It is as if the designed objects in all their two familiar forms are left to themselves. Freed from their iron grip of its masters, freed from obsessive naming, and from the shackles of the applied futility fostered by the generic plan. The, fi the fixed and the expected are exchanged for the tentative and the ambiguous. Chairs have become objects of unknown capacity. The divorce from the generic plan, where traditionally each piece of furnace is symbolically connected, protects its new condition. Here, the previously distinct purpose of each piece has lost its grip. Looking back over Skakarak, it is impossible not to think of the rising sea. Years ago, the receding inland ice poured its meltwater along the valleys of the reshaped rockscape. We were absent then, not now. Disguised by the shifting direction from north to west, the same water is returning not for a revenge, but as a reminder. Between the sea, the rock, and the white room, a drama has replaced the sleepy walk to the sea. The potential linkages between the oceanographer, the geologist, and the architectural geographer are yet to be constructed. We, the designers, are left holding a set of white boxes, mirrored by an almost empty rockscape in an endless sea, our anatomical theater with a body dissected.
between the encounter be with the bridges and the first of the designed objects that follow is at least a decade. The connection between the two events is obscure, but possibly motivated by the refusal of the first encounter to succumb to amnesia. The discovery of the first visit that reappears time and again in is how distance between things, not available in the city, made the singularity of each element stand outside the customary assemblage. The distance between the window and the lowly construction signal on the rock, a distance that is particularly Swedish, a vast country with few occupants, a distance that promotes reflection and highlights separation and difference. The chair just sat on its recently, the chair just sat on is easily fused with its sitter, while an object in the distance is free from such confusions. The authority of distance is discovered early in the forays along the southern coast in search of flotsam, a cedar box tossed on overboard in the Caribbean and delivered to our coast by the Gulf Stream. Such distance separates desire and object. Left alone, it gains value and independence, heightening the desire at the distance. Since few of the youthful forays ever resulted in a find, objects, all objects, evince a desire not to be found, not to succumb to utility and ownership, to remain always on the land, as we will see the desire takes many forms. This is a conclusion of works that began in the early 70s. And this is sort of a secret activity, not so much uh, secret for some particular reason, more than that, I have a feeling that it's hard for architects to believe that architecture doesn't say anything. We make architectures say things. It's very different. In fact, it might be trivial in the end, but it is for me terribly important that this is mute, quiet, always open for interpretation, and we tell it what it is. Now, that's a mouthful. So, I will show a bunch of projects that I think are relevant to this particular subject. But it's, um, it's not a linear project. It's not a patient search. It's an impatient search. It is taking all kinds of chances and developing and playing with them. But eventually they seem to have add up, added up to something that I now can call the life and death of objects because I will concentrate on furniture. But in fact, it cannot exclude the fact of all this stuff. Villa Prima Fase, 
Napa Valley, California, 1983. I began very early, since I had worked on building sites uh, as a young man, I almost killed myself rolling concrete in wheelbarrows, which is very dangerous, especially when the plant is this wide. So I was always interested in material. I was, I, I'm not one of these that is wild for new materials. I don't mind the old materials. I like them a lot. So I made this house for a client and finally did something quite different. It was a, I made a soft wall, a hard, a dry wall, a hot wall, a hard wall, a wet wall, and a soft wall. Put a glass box around it, put an eighth of a suburban house in the back, which was the bedroom. And every time you went to your bedroom, you had to go through the wet wall. And here is an essay on why there are possible that we have Marxist bricks, but I'm not, I'm not going to read it to you. But I, this is the wet wall. This is what you had. It was always raining, so you had to contend with this before you go to bed. So you always went. And it went like this. Trickle, dribble, drip, 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 gurgle, gumble, burble, bubble, babble, pearl, twirl, swirl, whirl, lap, wash, swash, flash, splash, and turn. Drizzle, mist, drisk, race, yet, spurt, squirt, journal, bump, drift, rift, cloudburst, roll, wave, cold, rise and fall, ebb and flow, holding, gushing, rushing, fluent, flowing, slowing, murmur, trickle, drip, drip, drip. So you always need an umbrella to cross. Peter Eisenman, I don't know if you've heard of him, came to, his wife lived in, in the valley in San Francisco. And he came to Bill Stout's bookstore. If you ever want to buy books, go there. And he found the little book that I was supposed to bring, but I didn't. The book that uh, I would print, because it was printed on letterpress. We only made 500 copies. He found it and promptly called me and said, Lars, you want to come to the Institute? And I just happened to have a sabbatical coming up and said, okay. And then danced around the room, knowing nothing about the Institute, but uh, flew to New York and taught with Eisenhower for a year and a half. For those who think of my peculiar style of teaching, Eisenman has a lot to do with it. He confused life and art. I never did. I developed a method of what I call the kiss and kick method. I said, you look so good. How come you make such ugly projects? <laughs> and that has worked. But that was not his way. He would say, you dress really ugly, and your projects are as bad. So that, that, that's the difference. 
So I bought this house because what happened was that I think Vidler and, uh, and uh, uh, what did you say, the other guy, the historian, uh, Kennedy, not Kennedy, Kennedy, this is Kennedy. Huh? He was not a Dave he was a Princeton. Come on, get your shit right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Frank, Frampton had a bad game. Vidler has some other ache. So I was sent to give the Alcan lecture in, in Montreal. Phyllis Lambert, wonderful lady, sat in the audience and sent her guy that worked for her, I think his name was Pear, and said to me, he said to me, we would like to see the drawings which I had shown them. So I said, yeah, well, you know, the problem is that I'm going to be in Paris this summer. And in fact, I don't know where to store them. So uh, he said, uh, well, uh, take them over to Seagram. We, I took them over to Seagram and they sat there. Then suddenly, in, just before I was coming back, um, I got a phone from Paris. He said, Phyllis, I want to see you tomorrow night uh, for dinner. I was in Paris. And at that time, we didn't have the trouble with airplanes. So I flew back, came to the, to the, it was the restaurant, it was actually in the Sleeman building. I think it's close now, famous. Anyhow, I knocked on the door to, to the foundation, and Phyllis was there, right at the door. And she said, oh, Lars, I like the drawings, but they're too expensive. And I said, not really, but I would like to do a book. Oh, you want to do a book? Yeah, let's do a book. Blind results was the result. And we never quibbled about money again. We became fast friends. Uh, so here, you should pay attention to this little blob that sits on the D and a box for this little house that sits in Stan on Stanish Avenue, Stanish Street, maybe, in, in, in Berkeley. And I've all, I built all this out stuff here. This was coming back from the Institute. And I, this is probably terribly washed out. Anyhow, I rinsed out the whole thing, put in a piece of mesquite that I had sitting up on the floor, and uh, cleared out the, the fireplace, and, and built a Buford fireplace, very narrow fireplace. Uh, which, which is not made for pizzas, but just for heating, because it throws the heat out rather than up. And uh, I worked on the walls like this, and this, of course, was uh, affected by Eisenman, uh, particularly his House 11. And I began to do what's called transformations, and this wall sort of wandered into the studio in the backyard, and you can see it here, very kind of, a very, very Berkeley sort of butcher perspective. But that piece that sat on that first drawing, uh, I then had a tendency, since I realized that I was going to be a paper architect for the rest of my life, I really didn't have the patience to deal with, with, uh, with uh, the upper middle class. So I decided instead to 
to travel with my, my things. So I would take this box and put it in Switzerland and uh, draw Switzerland and the box and realize that this was a way of actually exploring the object by putting it in different contexts. So uh, taking it apart. I was always a disassembler. I had learned this from actually from, from MIT, where I had been a student when I was at Harvard. Marvin Minsky were building a model with paper uh, that, that simulated children building with blocks. And it's a fantastic, interesting book. You can still find it. And uh, I got very inspired by that. Besides, I got very inspired by an astronomer. A Swiss astronomer named Swicky. And Swicky invented the V2 at the same time as the Germans were bombing uh, Berlin. Oh, no, no, that was the Allies that bombed Berlin. So Swicky made, he took all the rockets he knew, disassembled them and began mixing pieces and made new rockets and came up with a V2. He then took over Pasadena, uh, a famous lab there, fantastic guy. So I made lots of drawings. But at this time, I had also gotten to know Aldo Rossi. I spent a lot of time in Italy. I loved the Italian painters, particularly the Pirco. And uh, uh, obviously, there was influences like that that affected my, my drawings and my paintings. Unfortunately, I sold most of them in London, and I regret it. Now I will never sell, sell an original again. So I actually designed a house for, for uh, Mr. Goldstein and family. It's, they still live there happily, I hear, in San Francisco. And this, of course, was uh, uh, postmodernism. And I don't think I ever abandoned postmodernism. I'm post something, but definitely. Uh, I still love modernism, so I don't know what kind of post I am. Maybe I'm one of those. Lots of paintings. I was always inspired by painting. And I knew more about painting as a kid than I knew about architecture. I came, after all, from, from a deep forest in the middle of Sweden. But I even did, did I worked with, uh, when I lived in, uh, in Van Sayark in, uh, in Lugano, or, or I worked with Martin Wagner, a fantastic architect who only used granite, concrete, and glass. And, uh, we designed this house that never got built, but that shows that I can do modernism. <laughs> All right. Now, I'm sorry, I'm just dehydrating. I didn't drink now. You're supposed to drink six glasses of water every day. So, plan the souls of the single family house. This was the time of feminism. Feminism to me has always been like sci-fi. It's only now lately that it's actually no, no longer sci-fi. Uh, 
but I was greatly inspired by it. I find that I find it. Uh, it was part of being rebellious against principles about set things, about furniture in the right place, etc. So this was the book that Phyllis Lambert generously uh, published. Uh, and there are three houses there. The No Family House, The Love House, and Texas Zero. No Family House started in Santa Cruz. And I don't know, is, is there? There's no point. Okay, so let me go here. You see this yellow, the blue house existed, so I made a yellow house being Swedish. Uh, I made a yellow box with two glass houses, and originally they were like this. Then I skewed them with these things that were very fundamental. When in doubt, skewed things. That was the part of design, of design uh, that was very hot, you know. It was cool. So I did that, but I did it in a way that, that uh, left its traces, suggesting that they once had been in this position, but somebody turned them, and it affected that yellow box. At the same time, I stumbled over things like this. This is selling air conditioning. It hasn't changed very much, by the way, for local stuff. And uh, this one is selling air conditioning, but in the background, they sell American life. That's what men do. They look at our pieces of wood, and women look at glasses and polish them and so on. This is just, and I said, this is really ugly. I like to polish glasses. I, in fact, I don't. But. So, so this, this, be, this began a sort of sense that things have, there's something basically wrong with how we function and what, how, what we have designed. I, of course, discovered very early that the reason why everything was in its place was because of the banks. And they're still there. So, I, I did this turn, the rotation, very cool, shift. So we had erosion, we had accretion, we had production. <laughs> so there are skylights, there are the free cut. I worked on the stair, I worked on the bathroom equipment, and on the topiary. These are the plans. So all Americans, we entered through the garage into one of the glass houses, and out there in the glass house is a little toilet. You enter into the first floor, everything looks fine, <coughs> and over there is a tongue for the kitchen. Upstairs, however, it starts to begin weird, to look weird. There's a cut in the floor, and the handrail is on its own, so the liberated handrail. And that was how we be began to liberate objects from there. They are always forced to be used for something. This enormous utility that's everywhere. 
only children know how to do something with those children, with those children, with those chairs. You will sit on them, and once you sit, they will die. But when you all go back out, they will come alive again. And you never know what they do at night. <laughs> we still don't know what objects are. We're beginning to get close. We're realizing that wood store energy, and therefore is a very, very good material. And that concrete, and I learned this from the guy that went to Egypt, that if concrete was a country, it would, would, would use as much energy as be third after America and China, if it was a country. Drawings, drawings, drawings. Just in time. Make your time. Beautiful, beautiful. Principle of transformation. 
And I also love Roland Barthes. He wrote the fantastic books Roland Barthes discourse. So when in Paris, I really got this idea that I would do a lover's house. <coughs> a house for him to wait. Eventually, she never came. But the way I did it is that the shadow that was cast in the fourth courtyard <coughs> off with Belleville in Paris, I lifted that up, rotated it, and turned it into a facade and built a house behind it that was upside down, where you could wait because everything was upside down. I took Bart's discourse and attached it to each opening. It turns out that, it, that I could house his whole discourse. I gave this paper to a bunch of psychiatrists in San Francisco. They were jumping up and down, thinking I was an extrist. So um, it had one white floor and one black floor. And here it was, the love house in the fourth court, using Polaroids, white out, they existed, green out, blue out, white out, yellow out. I love them. I can't find them. Made very large drawings. Actually, Eisenman has the other one. Huge drawings. Using Polaroids going through the four courts. More drawings. More drawings. Texas Zero. It sits out there in Weimar. I need to say this more. Now, New Zero was a house or a series of a housing for New Orleans. I mean, you're not up to, to snuff if you haven't done a house for New Orleans. You know. They need architects really badly. So we have all done houses for New Orleans. But this was for two women recently divorced. One living on one side, one living on the other side, around a common room. And uh, again, like in Texas Zero, they could close off the kitchen and say, sorry, we don't have a kitchen. They could close off the bathroom, I'm sorry, we don't have a bathroom. Uh, and so in other words, they were just like the suffragists in the 1910 that tried to build houses without kitchens. Now, of course, we try to build houses with our garages. Little do you know that 15, 15 years from now, you don't need a garage. Uber will come and pick you up like this and fly you in. <laughs> because now everything is going to be batteries. Levitation is something I like a lot. And there are paintings with the, the old, my old homestead in the back. The pyramids, I guess this is for the guy that went to Egypt. And the beginning of, of furniture. I began to build furniture. It started with a leaning fireplace. 
the leading fireplace. Where did that come from? It came from an earthquake. <coughs> I was in a serious earthquake in, in Berkeley. By the way, I spent 25 years in Berkeley, 25 years in Texas, 25 years in Sweden, and now I'm going to spend, spend 25 years in, in, in uh, Florida, where I landed, by the way, in 1966. So, the witchcraft chair, all the stuff that I've been working on, uh, uh, really began in this, in this era. More paintings, <coughs> where again I shrunk my projects in order to fit them into the same. This is actually the same project with the same model, with all kinds of explorations. Like that lamp in the back is is actually a part of a downspout. It actually works quite well. Here is a. This guy here, that's Lennon, and that's me. And that, that baby there is very important. I'll talk about that. Actually, Carlos has put his hands on it and hides in his office. And I'm trying to get it released. He has lost the key to the office. <laughs> so, in more thinking about objects, I have spent almost 50 years in Berlin uh, every summer and sometimes at Christmas, teaching first at the Bauhaus in Dessau and then at the uh, Humboldt the last couple of years. And, uh, uh, we were uh, asked to, to do a project in Berlin. It was with my students uh, at Berkeley. Michael Bell was one of them, Antonio Lau, Tim Rampel. And uh, of course, the Berliners at that time, West Berliners, they couldn't care less. It was just an inconvenience. They flew out all the time. For us, the wall was incredibly interesting. And of course, the whole incident, but spending all the time in Germany, I begin to understand uh, that some of the cliches that we uh, non-Germans had developed about Germany was actually wrong. And there was all reasons to look at it closely and understand it in a different manner, which I think I've done over the years. And I've got to appreciate. Uh, we have had in the school many young Germans, not many, but some wonderful students. Uh, once, Luna Hartmann, uh, I'm still working with in Berlin. Anyhow, this contraption is uh, just spectacular, particularly in light of the wall that presumably is going to be built soon here. Uh, that has it realizes, of course, that a wall is not enough. You have to have all kinds of other traps in order to make it impossible to pass. And still people jumped over and got shot and whatever. Uh, so what I did, the wall is really, you can go and see it. It's right here outside. It's a blocked road now because the vice president is coming in. 
which you can go over and look at it, and it looks like this. So I was very interested in a lobotomy. So I said, let's just cut it and separate it to create the parenthesis. And in that parenthesis, let's throw in a bunch of bars so that both East Germans and West Germans can have a party in between the walls. So, as always, since I love words, like so many other non-speaking uh, English-speaking English people, it's been a wonderful thing for me. It's kind of an elastic piece of engineering, this language. So, I just read some. Para, Latin, uh, Greek, by the side of, this side along the side of, by, pass, void, delay, table, a plane for, for parenthesis, standstill, cesura, suspended, stoppage, standstill, pause, rest, break, respite, obeyance, kangaroo closure, clouture, halt, pause, hesitate, past, recess, break off, trying to stand, suspend, and it was a parenthesis, a parenthesis in this mad world of ours where we always have to, have to hide, to kill each other, to build a void in which we can throw in. And literally, we came up with the idea of throwing pieces in, throwing these basic forms like a wedge, maybe a strip. And that because I, not, not so much my fellow students, or the students that worked with me, they were not that interested in. I was interested in letting the inertia of the throw design the object. So what happened, and of course it came really from watching, in New York, watching all the broken, cheap umbrellas after a rain, laying everywhere, sort of decrepit. So throwing these things, as you can see in the image, to decide. Uh, the object sort of began again, going back to what happened in an old family house, kind of building itself because of the thrust of the throw. There was a beautiful model that disappeared that came with this. The ones I still have. I think this is my favorite drawing. And all these objects that, that, that we produced that came from this strange, and I tried to describe them by using my hands and, and crush them and bend them and tweak them in order to make new pieces. So then, we're in Texas. Paul Wixler. Came by to see my drawings. And I, say, I asked Paul, I said, could you, what do you think, could I show this somewhere? Of course I had had experience with, with Phyllis Lambert, so I, wasn't entirely shy. And he said, 
I would like to have a show. So he displaced um, one very famous guy whose name I forgot. And, and we, we had two rooms. Uh, my assistance was Tom. If you ever need some uh, stuff done by Tom, they live in, at least pieces of them live in, in uh, New York. The, the curator, wonderful curator, Deborah Brothers, Benders, that then became one of its students somewhere. And of course, the Rostins. Rostins built all the furniture, and we built the real furniture. And I tell you, it is such a pleasure to work with this marvelous uh, group of people. It was one of the most interesting things that ever happened to me, to, to make these, this furniture. So I also worked by them together with my son, that's now living in New York, in London, with a PhD in philosophy. Uh, I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> uh, he's, he's having a great time, though. I can never get to him after until after two at night. So this was the first generation of furniture that was actually made in, in, uh, in California. I had a, a German kid that had gone to carpenter school. They still have trade schools in Germany where you can learn so to do something. Fantastic guy. He now teaches somewhere in the Midwest. Uh, wonderful experience. And, and my friend Bill Green, who you will see in a couple of minutes. So the most radical aspect of this, this is actually Menil Foundation, was that I allowed uh, visitors to use the furniture. So they moved around the furniture, the people that always said, oh, you're too close. They became curators. Revolution. <laughs> so they, they loved it. And the kids that came, where's room, where's room, where's room? Because they couldn't play on the furniture. Not that they, they couldn't do that at home, obviously. So here are some of the contraptions that we will talk about. How are we doing with time? We doing okay? Still with me? So here you can see uh, how everybody got involved, and it was terrific, and very little damage. I've always been fond of German because you can make things like Haushaltgeräte, which actually means kitchen utensils, but it sounds so good, Haushaltgeräte. And um, so uh, all this furniture is Haushaltgeräte that are on their own errand. This is one of the thumbs playing with mouse that we will talk about. Golf ball, not a golf ball, that's a volleyball. And a tea. The tea, by the way, shows up all the time. The tea comes from Dali, which is a, the crutch. That he, he, his is like this, mine is like that. And that tea is used for all kinds of things. You can see it here, actually, Aaron bought this for, I don't know, 25 bucks and put it in a museum. 
the sitter to move, so not just any Tom, Dick, and Harry, and once on the floor, legs and arms flailing, T moves, comes along, ready to, ready to please, ready to move. Tom, or is it Dick, or maybe Harry, picks up to seek this, his other T, and once an alphabet of T's assembled, no one knows what D and H do. Tall boy. Spreckled like a trout, tall as a tail, the boy moves to bookish, yes, but ready to mount like an Everest or wheel like a barrel. Yet the arrows are flying, books are in fear. Poor Saint Sebastian, haunted by Diocletian nasties. Thanks very much for the ladder and wheels. This is the wall chair. probably seen them in, in England, leather, never moved. You think it of this, you can move actually. Everything has wheels, everything must move. And this is the existence maintenance closet. You see that little fin at the bottom there? Well, you kick it and your pants fly out. <laughs> Which is wonderful in the morning if you don't know how to dress. I mean, this is really works well. And then if you play with this one, your four shirts come out. One, two, three, four, all you need. And that, by the way, in the back is the shoe tree. So this is the stiff shirt. And that pokes through so you can look at your shirts through the front just to see if they move. So, of course, all of this was inspired by Beckett. Beckett has been, Borges, Beckett, all these memes have been my companions. And so this is all from Beckett. Mr. Nakabal kicks. Mr. Lewis looks. Mr. McStern opens. Mr. Fitzwein inserts. An episode in the Couture Camp, said Mr. O'Melden. And this, of course, is called O'Melden's Cube. Again, disassemble, take apart, look at the eighth piece. And you, you realize, and by the way, this is the book after, that I'm going to write after, <laughs> that once you disassemble something, that piece, is suddenly no longer connected and therefore on its own and have new potentials that you never thought about. So my latest idea about the city is that it is made out of millions of assemblages. For example, if you take single family house, car, highway, we okay? highway, credit card, shopping center. That assemblage is about to collapse because of Amazon. 
it goes off and, and disappears. Because Amazon is going to drop your, your stuff right at, your, at, at, at your door. So all those assemblages that we think are diehard and like steel are vulnerable. And this is how this city changes all the time by the assemblages falling apart. And any of those assemblages has its own assemblage that, like the credit card, not only buys it by groceries, it buys other things too. And very soon the, the, the credit card is going to disappear. What does that mean? In other words, we are always under this pressure of change that is very hard to fathom since we know nothing about the future. And this demands a kind of agility and interest. Because the only thing, I think Rev. Schoolhouse says that, by the way, he was writing Delirious New York down the corridor when I was at the Institute. He said, um, he said many very important things, actually. He said, uh, This is, uh, what is this called? Is this called something? It's the lean-to. It is a closet. That's sort of lean storage like this. When you open the door, the felt closet inside comes out and delivers yourself. And that wall was built like an airplane wing. And when you broke, broke that circuit, it started shaking. And this was in the museum here. Wonderful. I loved it. And of course, you can flip that box. It becomes a flip-flop box. So you can be buried at home. Uh, when I stepped down from the uh, deanship, I, against all odds, it seemed, I got invited to the Rome Prize. And this is the first time I actually won something without struggle. The reason I came to America was that they refused me at the architecture school in Stockholm. So I went to Berkeley. They were very generous. They cut off my five-year program and gave me, so I got my PhD in two years. I applied to Harvard. Then some nice guy from Arizona decided not to go. So I got in. And Bill, Bill from Malka, when, when he looked at my, my portfolio, said, this is the worst portfolio I've ever seen. <laughs> well, three years later, I offered me a job. <laughs> so you see, don't, don't jump to conclusion. There are some fogies that wake up. So, fogos. I've never been much of a historian, but I fell in love with this building in the black, in the back. Um, the Pantheon. 
and I loved it. I never managed to get up on the paint, although I claimed that I did. That you can, you actually can walk, you can crawl inside the wall and come up on the skull, and crawl on the skull and look down in the hole. And I've seen it snow in that hole. Oh boy, it's wonderful. So I developed, uh, I, I found a book uh, that, uh, that was very inspiring, I forgot the title. And I created all the, I created a kind of cityography. I wanted to make a play. I never got to it, but it's not over yet. So there is Acephalus. Acephalus lost his head. I often feel that way. So I made a vehicle for agoraphobes so they could roll themselves over a piazza and get to the, the church. I, there was the Freudmobile. The Freudmobile is, is one of those chaiselons that I made that now has a seat in the front and you could drive around your, your, your guy laying down and Freud with a witchery chair or made all these drawings. They have never been seen. Actually, I got to build a lot of this stuff by, in Germany. Uh, I had a bunch of graduate students at Humboldt we bought a bunch of, of uh, office chairs that were stacked in. They throw away these things. I'm very much against throwing things away. So again, I dissembled them. And this is an anatomical theater at Humboldt University, actually. Um, and I took apart uh, 12 chairs and built a whole bunch of new furniture. But I only have this picture. And I wrote the piece that was actually in the, in the hardware um, uh, design magazine that I, I, I think is okay. Houston, 2002, the makings of a hundred year storm. Here I am, speed zones, downtown, so in the canopy, field roof. The Zoen McCallopy, the storm, extreme fragmentation, proliferation of monocultures and destruction of biodiversity. But in the euphora of progress, the, the unprecedented agglomeration of alphabetic root components from subdivisions to shopping centers and their hidden byproducts is the recipe for catastrophe. Internalized logics externalized less affair. Everybody talks about, about sprawl. Well, that sprawl has been in between. The, the, a, uh, the inside is completely organized, absolutely predictable. If you're in one, you get lost in the next. Tarmacs everywhere with invisible consequences, aggravated by the engineered landscape, which becomes the disease delivery system. The result in weeks of severe flooding far beyond the assigned floodplains, with prolonged blackouts and shelter destruction caused by devastating winds. Simultaneously, the drinking water supply collapses, in, instigating an epidemic health crisis. Weeks of extreme ozone alert with everyone confined to the indoors and children and elderly filling the hospitals. So, this is in 2002. 
In other words, we have known about this for a long time in Houston. Very little has been done about it, partly because there are no regulations. And I, I tell you, I'm not particularly fond of zoning because I think it's outmoded. But it seems to me that this reckless building in places where we shouldn't build is extremely problematic. But that's another chapter. I, uh, I was invited by a French group to participate in a, in, a, in a competition in Gothenburg, which was my mother's downtown, <laughs> my mother's birth town, where she was born right in there. And it was a project to deal with this piece and that piece, and this is actually the two. This is Volvo country. Lots of uh, blue-collar workers that never get to the other side. It's sort of typical problem. Instead, in this case, it's a river, not a railroad, but obviously a, a huge problem in a, in a social democratic country like Sweden. And the city had come to the conclusion they wanted to do something. I essentially said, well, get them into schools, educate the children. They're as smart as yours get going. You don't need any design. Well, anyhow, we did a beautiful project where every, everybody else concentrated on the bridge. We did all kinds of wonderful things with boats going back and forth and it was a, a lots of fun. We lost, of course. Uh, so, uh, the latest thing is um, Parque Mobile, which is uh, Jesus Vasayo, uh, who translated for me he came up with this wonderful <coughs> mobile park, Madrid, Spain, Circo de Bellas Artes, directed by Miguel Hernandez Vial, curator Laura Gonzalo, Jesus Vasayo, 2008-19. This was just the last six months. So we'll just go through. Sala Minerva, beautiful space in the basement. Now, you think this is yeah. No, this is Bill Green, my model builder. Ha! All of this is models. Nothing is bigger than this. Beautifully built. Bless his soul. He, he's a professor at, uh, at um, Virginia Tech. I called Bill up and said, Bill, I have a problem. I need models. Can you give me some ideas? He says, I'll build them. Are you sure? Oh, yes, of course. So he built them. We, uh, we, sell, we sent them. OCM built the boxes that flew them. And this, this is Frank White. I don't know if I can him. Frank White was a wonderful photographer that did all the photographs, all the ones that have fairly high. Uh, Resolution of France. He did this, I think. Well, clearly fatter than Beck. <laughs> but uh, I looked at serious, which of course is not true. Well, he was not serious either. He wrote in French. So, I'm sorry, I have to drink today. I'm used to be in a bar at this time of the day. <laughs> So, 
This chair here is one of the key chairs for my production. It took the Ritwell chair, and like Marx, when he went to see one of his friends, the philosopher, he said, I saw him upside down. So I rotated the Ritwell on its shoulders and wrapped it in an Adirondack. This was to take the highfalutant with the lowfalutant and make this new chair out of it. And you, if you want to know, as I told you, it's there. And all of my chairs are relatives. They are spawned one by the other. So this is the tea chair. Unfortunately, this thing is supposed to stick out more. Uh, all these chairs have another agenda aside from be cha being chairs. It wants to tell you that the chair is here too, not just there for your abuse. Boy, that's very weak. Anyhow, Roxane drawing. I didn't even have to make drawings. Wow. Lots of drawings. <coughs> Here it is. This room with all the stupid pigs. This is a nice model. This is, um, uh, what is this called? This is called, uh, Anyhow, it flips open, and of course it's a, it's a Murphy bed, so uh, you can sleep there, and then in the morning you, you flip it, and then you pick it up, and you can roll it over to another place. No longer set locations, so you can design your bedroom, into your living room, whatever you want, in a couple of minutes. La pistola. Tall boy, mouse, now with a gold bowling ball and a gold tee, like a gold key. <coughs> the racer. These are new lamps. New life, old lamp. The tea light and the mouse. The mouse is a devious object because it's. My wife always complained about it's too low. I like the fact that you had to bend over. Skateboard, ironing board. Bowling alley, painter's palette, all of those things, the mouse, because you can roll it like this, all of those by diversions <coughs> attempted to obstruct your inevitable use of it without not even thinking about it as a table to put your things on. I don't know if it actually works. 
because people are still putting their brakes on it without hesitation. So it, it, it's again part of sci-fi. It is a dream about us changing our ways, trying to look at the world in a different light. The latest thing I've done is I, I go through these kinds of transformations. I even am thinking about it having clothes for the furniture at night. This piece is useless. It looks like a piece of furniture, but it's useless. Yeah. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Now, we have the two last. This is the official map of the landscape out there. Lake, Pontchartrain, New Orleans, Bellechasse, Ile de Saint-Charles, Duras, Plaquemines Parish, Terrebon Parish. This is the real map. All thanks to the Corps of Engineers. Mississippi is a wonderful, wonderful contraption that has been greatly disturbed since Huckleberry went on it. It's been polluted by agriculture, and industrial agriculture, of course, is directly connected to our cities. It's part of another assemblage. But every year it silts up and builds new land, whatever disappeared. Of course, the Corps of Engineers were concerned about keeping those places where people, we again, have, of course, the right to be not realizing that we are all over the place in building in places where we shouldn't be anymore. And this to me is devastating. It's a realization that we have to change our educational system completely. Because we have to rethink all the time what kind of material we use, thinking about the consequences. If we built in wood, we could replenish it, provided you shouldn't you shouldn't go you shouldn't go away, you should come here. Try. We have to think, we, this is like a huge cloud. We, we can't finish it. We will succumb to it. But maybe we can delay it. And we have a responsibility, not to ourselves, but to our children, that we must slow this enterprise down. We must change our ways. We must have also a labor ender, as Rilke said. 
as we promote. We have to change our lives. Are we doing it? Very good. I cringe every time I throw away this plastic bottle. Even though we know it'll end up somewhere. We, we have to have a major kind of awakening. It doesn't look too promising. So it will happen faster than we thought. And in the meantime, we'll be wheezing and coughing and dipping and all that. So, it's not very nice to end on a sad note, but it is necessary. Time has come and everything can't be so cheerful. I've had a fantastic life. I was very lucky to come to this country. I would never have made this career that I've made in Sweden. I've been very lucky. It has been very generous to me. Tall and blonde, yeah, yeah, etc., etc. I started at Berkeley at the same time as a black sociologist, Russ Evans. We were partners from the beginning, he and I. He always said, and I was deeply disturbed here, that well, the environment has only 5% influence. And I've come to realize that it was not completely wrong. We have, we have, we have to realize that this is autonomous. We can't expect our clients to understand what this means because we have assigned values to all of these protruding elements, to the spatial effect of several layers. All of that is very hard for people who are not, not to see. And it doesn't tell, it doesn't say that unless you know how to look for it. So we have to begin to be much more instructed, much more oriented towards education. Because education is, after all, our saving grace. That is how we can advance. And universities of the kind that rises are marvelous that way. But we have responsibility to invite more and more students of diverse backgrounds, because it's necessary. We need to realize that the multicultural is so much more effective than monocultures. It doesn't mean that we have to feel bad about everything we do. We have to feel good about the future. And that's what we have to do. Thank you so much.
For more information on Lars Larup, visit the Past Events tab on the Rice Architecture website. Don't forget to subscribe to our page on SoundCloud to keep up with new releases. I'm your host, Rose Wolkowski, and this has been Tete a Tete.